Jesse Milan Jr. is president and CEO of AIDS United, a national organization focused on HIV policy, grant making, and capacity building. Mr. Milan is a lawyer whose career includes leading HIV programs and organizations at national, regional, and global levels. He has chaired five nonprofit boards, was AIDS director for Philadelphia, has chaired federal advisory committees, and serves currently on the Scientific Advisory Board for PECFAR and on the Infectious Disease Board of the American Board of Internal Medicine. Mr. Milan is living with HIV for decades. Please help me welcome to the podcast, Jesse Milan Jr. How are you, Jesse? I'm good, Marvell. Thank you so much for inviting me. No problem. Thank you for, for saying yes. I'm going to jump right in. Who? So we, we know who Jesse Milan Jr. is. Could you tell us about who Jesse Milan Sr. is? Jesse Milan Sr. was my father, who died last year, and he was an educator and a civil rights leader. And he was in the state of Kansas, where I'm from, and among his many, many achievements in civil rights, he was the first African-American public school teacher in a major school district uh, that was uh, in Kansas that was not focused exclusively on the African-American community. And he helped, he helped, he led the effort to create the first integrated swimming pool in the state of Kansas. He started his teaching career the year Brown versus Board of Education was, was passed by the U.S. Supreme Court. And 50 years later, President Bush had him serve on the Presidential Commission to recognize that incredible milestone. He's a, he was a state president of the NAACP, so I grew up and a alumni sponsor for Kappa Alpha Psi. So I grew up with civil rights and, and the uh, African-American community of leaders in my home. That's who I am. And that's who he was. That's who he was. How did you get into HIV work? So I hear about this civil rights background and your, your parents really leading the charge in activism in your own life. How did you get into HIV work? Well, I always knew I was going to be a lawyer. And my legal career, I knew that employment law was really important and it was and it was where a lot of the civil rights issues came to a head what were the rights of employers and employees especially when it came to discrimination law and as a young lawyer i was a labor lawyer doing that very work but it was at the same time that the hiv epidemic was beginning to rage and i found myself drawn more and more to the question well what is the law with regard to HIV and AIDS. And I found that as a young lawyer who was gay, that if I didn't step forward to answer, help answer that question, I wasn't sure who would. And so in 1985, 1986, 1987, I found that I was being asked more and more to help do that response for the Philadelphia community. 
1985, that was the year that my late partner died of AIDS. And so the professional world and my personal world collided. And I found that my role for the community was empowered because I felt so strongly professionally and personally that I needed to do something. Wow. Thank you for walking us down that journey. So now when you go into rooms, I know your bio talked about serving on many boards and many global and international capacities. Who do you fight for? Who are your people? Well, my bio tells you I'm on the Infectious Disease Board of the American Board of Internal Medicine. And we had a meeting where we're looking at expanding the HIV workforce so that the clinical workforce is truly prepared to to respond at the highest level for all people living with uh, HIV or vulnerable to HIV in this country. And I found my voice in that meeting was to represent all of them, all of them, people who are diagnosed, people who should be diagnosed, people who are negative but who should be on PrEP, and also all the voices of the allies and family members and friends who love and support those of us who are living with HIV or highly vulnerable to HIV. I find that at any one moment, my voice could represent any and all of those. And so when I think about my community, that's the community that I try to represent. At any one moment, one segment's voice might be needed or needed to be more powerful than another, but I always view it sort of as an orchestra's, as, a, as an orchestra conductor's score. The big music includes all the individual voices, and I feel sometimes that my job is to be the conductor for the entire orchestra. Speaking about orchestras and conducting, what comes to mind is Broadway in New York. And you speak about the 80s. As a young Black gay man maneuvering throughout a new world, how did the arts impact your life? How did music and culture and arts impact who Jesse is? Wow, that's a wonderful question. I recently heard a sermon on that thing. They said, that song, everybody has that song that sort of calls to you and, and is about you and guides you or, or represents who you are, that song. That song for me was, a, was in fact a Broadway song from the musical Pippin. Really? Wow. And the lead character, Pippin, is about a young man who's trying to find his place in the world, and he sings a wonderful song called My Corner of the Sky. And that song has resonated in my heart since I was a senior in high school. And the group that I sang with in college, and I sang with an a cappella male chorus in college, we had an arrangement of that song. And every time we sang it, young adults, college-age kids, their eyes would light up because finding your corner of the sky is what we all hope to grow up to find. That's, that's so good. How have you been able to find your corner around policy 
and grant making with Age United. I know you're the president and the CEO of Age United, one of the top uh, funders in the country for HIV work. How have you found your own little corner in, in Age United with the work that you do at Age United? Age United actually knitted together several aspects of my life. As a lawyer, I've always been very involved in the policy arena, in legislation and in human rights and civil rights. And Age United is a leader in advocating with Congress and the administration on policies, programs, and appropriations needed for ending this epidemic. But I've found that as an advisor to the government, I was sometimes asked to chair outside review grant committees for the Ryan White program. And I was enthralled about the grant-making process and the grant-making decision process. And I learned a lot about it from the inside through HRSA outside review committees. And after being on several of them where I was reading for hours applications and scoring proposals and then involved in the negotiations about how the uh, committee would uh, come to a consensus about each application, suddenly I was asked to be chair of that process over and over again. And at the same time, my class from Princeton has a foundation that gives grants to students to do public service work in the summer. And of course, public service work is part of who my background is. And I became chair of the board of that foundation. And so I, so grant making became more and more exciting to me. How do we decide who gets a grant? How are we scoring applications? How are we making sure that we're being fair in the process? And how are we making sure that the resources that we have to give out go as far and as wide as they can possibly go? So with all that background, when the opportunity to come to Age United uh, came to me, I thought, oh my God, it mets, it knits together so much of what I already do. Uh, in terms of my history with grant making and my history with policy and and advocacy. And then our capacity building work is very much rooted in the work that I did as AIDS director in Philadelphia, making sure that organizations had the resources that they needed to mount their corner of the sky of addressing the epidemic. Do you have what you need and how can we get it to you so that you can sustain your work to, to make an impact for your corner of the community. And these three elements, capacity building, grant making, and policy, all were part of my who I am, and Age United has knitted all that together for me. And I love this organization and this work. You talk about grant making, policy, and capacity building. How important are all three of those things when we talk about ending the HIV epidemic in the South? They are very important. The South has always been under-resourced, and so grant-making is important. The capacity of organizations to do the work that's needed to be done needs more support. 
And the, the policy arena in the South is really one that needs strong advocates to help move the needle on the policies necessary for ending this epidemic, and not just for the new policies, but for destroying the old policies and existing policies that need to die and go away. So policy, grant making, and capacity building are all important for transforming the South and helping it move its efforts for ending the epidemic in that region. And so when we talk about policy from a younger generation at 36, policy is not sexy. It is not attractive. But how do we get younger folks involved in policy work? Well, I think the word policy needs to be broken down. Okay. Policy can include legislation. Okay. Policy can include revising or eliminating existing legislation, laws that should not exist. Policy also includes appropriations, taxpayer money being allocated to a certain effort or a certain goal. We need more money. And then, of course, policy can also include regulations. Sometimes regulations are not understood that they are two policies. So when a government agency sets out regulations about X or Y or Z, those need to also have the input of advocates to make sure that the regulations don't harm us but help us. So on a legislative end, we need to look at, well, what are the laws that currently exist that need to be changed or eliminated, or what are the laws that don't yet exist? Oh my goodness, in the South, that's a whole list. Everything from Medicaid expansion, which will only happen when the state legislatures in the South make that decision, to eliminating criminalization laws. That will only happen when state legislatures vote to get rid of the existing laws. Those are just two terrific examples. Appropriations. Too many states in the South have no state tax dollar money used to address HIV AIDS. That's a policy initiative. So if we can get people excited about those, then we can get people excited about policy. Wow. Wow. That is. Thank, thank you for breaking that down. We know that the South is no stranger to harmful policies around identity, around who they decide to love and cherish. When we talk about reimagine the response in the South, how do you envision reimagining how we do policy work? Is Do we need to shift do we need to reprogram or do we need to stay on the track that we're on? Well, I do think we need to shift and stop thinking that all policy happens in Washington. We need to shift to understand that policy happens in Tallahassee, in Jackson, in Little Rock, in Austin, in state capitals. And policy happens in city councils as well, and in school boards. 
And so if we can start understanding that policy can starts literally in your own backyard and cascades all the way up through the voting booth to who's in the White House and who's in the state in the Capitol, not just the Capitol in Washington, but this Capitol in your own states, I think we can help begin to transform and reimagine how our work needs not just to focus on the national level, but at the state and local level as well. And our response to the HIV epidemic has always been at, this, at the local level. Federal resources come to state and city health departments to make the grassroots possible. But grassroots advocates need to really make sure that what's going on in their own states at city councils and school, school and school boards is, are developing policies that really do represent us. Even sexual health education that ensures that people, that young people understand the risk around sexually transmitted diseases, including HIV, that, that, that our school districts are affirming that personal identity is developed in your younger years and that we should respect all identities. Those are issues that are happening at the very grassroots level today. They can't necessarily be changed at the national level. That's how we start to reimagine how our advocacy can be effective. What energizes you around working at the grassroots level? When you talk about policy, you really talk about that decisions are very localized, most majority of our decisions. Where does that energy come from? Because I've seen it in my own living room. I've seen it in my own home. I've also seen it in church basements and in schoolyards and in classrooms where the conversations are about what should be. You know, a conversation in a classroom about, well, is this right? To be able to even have that conversation, is this right? Is this wrong? Those conversations are where people can get excited about their role as citizens, as voters. And, and, and you know, there's an old adage, all politics is local. <laughs> I think all advocacy starts with that local understanding that I can make a difference. And the difference I can make can start right where I live and it can go all the way up to the top. Have you ever thought about a life in public office? Yes. <laughs> uh, public... <laughs> Public office and elective office are not the same, but they have the same impact. The opportunity to run for public office was presented to me years and years ago when I was in Philadelphia. But I long ago concluded that my personal role was in public offices of public organizations like Age United, where my role was to promote public service and a public response. And so I feel very much that I hold a public office. I see. Some might describe what we're facing right now in the HIV movement as a trifecta. You have HIV, uh, we have COVID, and now we have monkeypox. How do we get over this hurdle? How do we get over this hump that we feel like, once again, here comes another thing 
that we have to get vaccinated for or seek medication or try to get the right information about? How do we get over this hump? I think we need to get over the hump that these viruses are sent to us because of us. I have had the opportunity to serve on a number of grant review committees for scientific research where billions of dollars of federal money are going to be allocated. And in many times I'm asked to do that because of the, because these are infectious diseases and my work in HIV is about one of the biggest infectious diseases. And I have come to understand that there are viruses out there that are simply waiting to jump into the human race. And these viruses don't care whether you are gay or straight, black or white, from the, from the global north or the global south, the U.S. north, the U.S. south. And we need to be prepared for the next virus. Where it has a foothold may have nothing to do with who we are. It may simply be a viral opportunity that presents itself. But we need to understand that a virus is a virus is a virus. It doesn't care who we are. But we should care whether we are prepared for all of us to be able to attack it and prevent it for ourselves. And that's what I really think we have to get our heads around. That's the hurdle, that viruses don't jump into the populations to attack a specific segment. That was true with HIV, that's true with COVID, that's true with monkeypox. Viruses simply exist. And where they get their foothold may have nothing, absolutely nothing to do with who you are but it may have much to do with whether or not we're prepared as a people to stop it. Do you see any similarities from the beginning of the HIV epidemic to now COVID and monkeypox? Of course. The stigma of these diseases, especially HIV and monkeypox for gay men, the inequities of these diseases, including COVID, that have dramatically had uh, inequitable impact on people of color. And of course, that's true with HIV, and that's true also now with monkeypox. So these, these similarities, I think, really do force us to make sure that we understand how our broader public health infrastructure still needs to be improved so that these inequities don't happen. And I think our education with our broader community to make sure that the stigma of these diseases don't continue because they're not about who a person is, they're simply about a virus. Good, good. It's taken us 40 years to continue to remind people that the HIV virus is just a virus. It's not there to, to to make a judgment about anyone's life or lifestyle. We've been talking about policy and using our voices. Could you talk to us about AIDS Watch and the importance of AIDS Watch? AIDS Watch is terribly important. It's the largest grassroots advocacy effort in the country to bring the voices of grassroots people directly to Congress and to the administration to tell Congress and the administration exactly what we need for ending the HIV epidemic. This is the 28th year for AIDS Watch. And in these last couple of years, we've done 
uh, a spring and a fall edition. We've been able to trans transform it to going virtual when necessary under the COVID pandemic. But each year, AIDS Watch is hugely successful. And in one day, we typically have two to 250 meetings with members of Congress in one day to tell them what we need for ending this epidemic is highly powerful. And you know, Age United just celebrated its 10th anniversary last year, and we gave an award to um, Nancy Pelosi, among others. And in her acceptance, she remarked on how important AIDS Watch is and how legislators view AIDS Watch as important because they learn so much directly, not only from their own constituents, but from constituents all across the country, sharing the themes and the needs that people living with and vulnerable HIV need legislators to understand at a deeply personal level. This isn't about reading a report that somebody wrote. Now let's take a break for today's policy note. Today's policy note. For the last 30 years, AIDS United and our preceding organizations has been a convening partner for AIDS Watch, the largest constituent-led HIV advocacy event in the country. Each year, hundreds of people living with HIV and their allies come together to learn about the latest health policy issues and to join in collective advocacy on the policies that most impact their lives. From humble beginnings, and a small crowd of advocates to an event that has now boasted 600 participants at peak. AIDS Watch has transformed and grown, but the need for HIV policy and education and community engagement has never been greater. Alongside our dozens of partners and sponsors who make these events possible, the convening organizations of AIDS Watch also include the U.S. People Live with HIV Caucus and the Center for Health Law and Policy Innovation. AIDS Watch 2023 is tentatively slated for March 26 through March 28, 2023, and the planning partners hope to once again welcome advocates back into in-person community in Washington, D.C. for the event, pending public health analysis closer to time. Welcome back to today's episode. It's about hearing the voice of a person living with HIV or vulnerable to HIV saying, this is what happens in my life if you don't do your job as a member of Congress to change the trajectory of this disease. Wow. Our final question, if you had a magic wand, what would you reimagine about our response to HIV in the South? I think I would reimagine how we address the stigma of this disease, how we reimagine how allies for people living with HIV and vulnerable to HIV are more empowered to speak out themselves rather than relying on people living with HIV to do the speaking out all the time. I think if I could hear from people who are negative, who are the parents, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, cousins, roommates, churchgoers, choir members who are concerned and worried and love people with HIV, 
if I could reimagine that their voices would be loud, that would be one way that I would wave that magic wand. And then I'd wave it over the state legislatures and the governor's mansions and say, wake the hell up. Your community needs you to do something different today. And you haven't done it for 40 years, but it's not too late to start now. That's the magic wand. And I would say to the, and I would wave this wand over our patients and clients in our service organizations and say, you're not just a patient. You're not just a client. You can be an advocate for people, for yourself and for others by bringing your voice by bringing your voice and your vote where necessary to make a difference. That's good. Each episode we dedicate it uh, to a group of people or uh, to a population. And today uh, we de dedicate this episode to those advocates and those activists in our community who are fighting uh, for their voices to be heard in community and with elected officials. Jesse, thank you so much for your time today. Marbell, thank you for your work and for these great, great podcasts. Glad to be here. Thank you for listening to Reimagine the Response podcast. Please listen and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts.